0: Welcome to Born Curious. This is the second part of our conversation with Asfa Majid, a professor of cognitive science at the University of Oxford and Radcliffe's 2022 to 2023 William Bentinck Smith Fellow. We are your co-hosts. I'm Ivalice
1: Estrada. I'm Heather Min. If you're just joining us, we've been engaged in an enlightening discussion with Asfa about her interest in language documentation and the significance of language extinction and preservation.
0: So be sure to listen to part one before diving into this episode. That way you won't miss out on essential context and insights. So without further ado, let us continue. Thank you, Asfa, for being our guest and continuing our conversation. Thank you. I have a basic question. Why have most of these studies on language and thought been focusing and using people who speak English. Is it because English-speaking research centers and universities are the people who have come up with these methodologies or what?
2: Yes, and also convenience. So, you know, in the history of psychology, most of the studies have been done with undergraduates that study psychology. So it's mostly young women, 18 to 22 years old. And I think because there's been a presupposition that psychologists are trying to figure out core aspects about how the mind and brain works, one person is as good as another in trying to capture that. I think things are shifting and people are recognising we want to capture um, those core properties but also account for the range that we find. So even within a single culture, we know that there's variation so there's individual differences at the one kind of the lowest level but also kind of more structured variation by by class maybe by race by what people are doing so you know is an undergraduate who's spending most of their time indoors on a laptop (laughs) learning intensively is that capturing the same kind of properties uh, as if we go to say a forester who's working on landscape you know spending their time outdoors most of the time so would we capture the same kinds of you know visual perception memory reasoning Um, so yeah so I think um, psychologists have been lured maybe (laughs) um, by the ease of recruiting certain kinds of participants and maybe that shapes the kinds of questions that they ask as well it's been critical for a lot of psychology to use experimental methods where everything is very well controlled um, and so you can manipulate things and know exactly what an outcome is due to whereas using more naturalistic methods you it's more difficult sometimes to interpret the data. Um, so I, I think uh, the challenge has been to f- try and figure out methods that you can apply to more diverse set of peoples and maybe, you know, come up with studies that can work in the field or combine field work with more controlled lab-based experimental work. So are more people going out into the world and talking to the
0: forester as well as people in remote parts who don't have access to uh, psychology laboratories?
2: Yeah, I think I think there is a growing um, interest. It's difficult, so funding isn't great. This work is challenging and time intensive, so it's much easier to run 12 experiments on your computer using Amazon Turk uh, participants that have signed up to do that kind of thing. It's a lot more difficult to collect 12 experiments in the field with people who have got their own day-to-day business to attend to and who have to be interested enough to give their time and volunteer to do something like this. Um, So because it's more time and labor intensive, it can take longer to get results. And when everybody's being compared, you know, we were hired by universities to produce papers. But what about um, psychologists and
0: uh, university professors in non-English locations throughout the world? Are they just not thinking about or teaching or studying psychology in the same way?
2: Yeah, I think that's a real opportunity. I think there's been a few things that have um, meant that perhaps we're not able to enjoy the fruits of those possible different sites as well as we could. So one has been because there's been such a strong domination of the kind of English Anglo context that people who even have trained, let's say, in the States and have gone back to academic jobs in... China or you know Nigeria or they've applied the same paradigms in their new context so they're asking the same questions because they're trying to be in communication with those places and those are elite you know everybody wants to be part of that academic discourse so I think there was just kind of an adoption of the same research questions same methods I think now people are recognizing some of those differences I think Let's say you're a researcher in Malaysia that's been trained in the US. You go back. How are you going to conduct your experiment? Probably with the undergraduates in your classroom who are also, you know, have learned English and are probably drinking Coca-Cola and going watching American films. And still, it's a different version of English, right? Yeah, it can be. It can be. So I I completely agree. I think there are questions to be asked in this context and I think there are people that are doing that work now. There's layers of issues, let's say. So Mm. one is, you're an academic and you want to collect data. Who should you collect it from? Do you collect it from your undergraduates? How different are those undergraduates to an average American undergraduate? So what's the range of variation that we're seeing there? And then can we take it out Of the undergraduate population to capture diversity more broadly there's some amazing studies now looking at how language is processed uh, in the brain for speakers of different languages so we know for an English speaker language is very strongly um, lateralized in the left side of the brain but for Chinese um, Mandarin speakers, we find seem to find more bilateral activation. I wanted to go back and ask about that, whether
1: there are any collaborations happening with neuroscientists looking at what is happening in the
2: brain. There's lots of different avenues by which this is happening. So there's been fantastic work with sign languages, American Sign Language in the US, so um, pioneering work by Karen Emery, for example. has also shown some strong similarities in how language is processed between spoken and sign languages but also some differences I think we're still unpacking what exactly that means so there's definitely much more plasticity uh, there in how language can be organised but still the fact that we see recurrent structures turning up again and again, that there is this preference for the language system to be left lateralized. it's trying to figure out What kind of system is this that has preferences of being neurally instantiated in one way, but still has a flexibility to reorganize? If you have, you know, um, brain damage or something like that early in life, you can still be a completely fluent speaker um, without any apparent visible sign of anything going wrong. So it's not necessarily that the
0: left side of the brain is where the work of language happens when you say Chinese speakers use both sides of the brain.
2: Uh, What does that mean? Well, everybody uses both sides of the brain. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that there seems to be more asymmetry for English speakers than for Mandarin speakers. And uh, it's unclear why part of the reason could be because of the reading system, actually, not properties of the spoken language per se. But English um, is an alphabetic writing system. So we have letters for each of the, most of the sounds in English. You know, we have this odd alphabetic system. It's not completely regular, but okay, that's different. <laughs> but um, uh, in Chinese, you have a logographic system where you have characters that are representing syllables. Um, and also it may be more iconic. So these characters can capture images perhaps and you're having to learn them in a different way so it could be actually the way that you're processing these um, different writing systems as part of what's going on. Um, but I think what you know neuroscience is not in my area but what <laughs> neuroscientists are trying to capture is what are what's the kind of decoding conditions which parts of the brain are preferentially being used to decode certain kinds of information but I think just the observation that certain, you know, again, it's the kind of mapping question: why, what functions get mapped where, and is it necessary for it to happen in that way? And to answer that question, you need to look at the cross-linguistic diversity.
0: So, what do we know at this point? You've shared with us all of the different speculations and the and the myriad of possibilities. And well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. What do we? What can we say? We can stand on so that we can then, you know, lay on top of that the next phase of of studies. Uh, is there anything that anybody's really agreeing on, or is it all just controversial?
2: Language is processed in the brain. <laughs> um, culture is important in shaping language. From my perspective, the most exciting places to go next is to exploit the cross-linguistic and cross-cultural variation to figure out true universals. So I am also interested in capturing what is shared amongst people. And I believe the best way to do that is to take the extant cultural and linguistic diversity seriously. So that's what I think the money is. The money. (laughs) That doesn't exist.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about this because one thing that you've investigated is, you know, just how people describe sensory input, right? So smells and the one about the smells is the one that stuck with me because you found that one particular, um, population had all these different categories for smells that don't exist in many other languages. Why don't people make
2: up more words? To describe things we do a pretty good job of doing that so i think um the american dialect society each year has a word word of the year mm-hmm. so they pull together you know new things terms that have popped up people get to vote on what they think is the word of the year and if you look at that well actually you know 2020 was the word covid you know before 2020 that was not anywhere then suddenly it's one of the most high frequency words that you find in anywhere So we do coin new things. It's really interesting if you look at uh, perfumers, Mm -hmm. um, when they experience a new scent, they will often coin a a term to remember it. But it will be idiosyncratic. So one perfumer will describe it one way and another another way because for them, they have to remember that scent because they're thinking about creating novel perfumes let's say so they have to remember you know this element or that element how they're going to combine but they're not necessarily communicating it to other people so my term for it might be completely different to yours because I'm using it as a tool to help me remember and create but for a term a novel term to work communicatively we have to agree what is what it means for that to be to do any job in communication so that's why in the sensory industry you have people that are trying to figure out how do you communicate this scent to now the people that are going to produce it, then the people that are going to market it, and then how ordinary people understand it. You've got all these lines of trying to figure out how to, how to make um, the communication work across different audiences. So I think uh, it's not enough. You need to have the right context for a word to work. Mm. It's got to be something that we're experiencing or coordinating over. That makes it relevant enough for us to develop a language game around it. Quit trying to make fetch happen
0: <laughs> unless you're a perfumer, apparently. <laughs> so going back to Ivolise's question, though, you you aren't studying perfumers within the Jahai community, right? So why is it that they have so many words? that describe nuances of odors that we don't. I grew up in New York City and, you know, the foul smell of dumpsters (laughs) in August, I think, probably shut it all down. (laughs) Um, But what's going on with the Jahai when they're not, you know, perfumers, but they've got so many
2: words. Uh, Why? That was the question that I started with. Why why do the Jahai have all of these words? Um, So we can think about a a few different factors that might have led to that so one they live in a very odorous environment they live in tropical rainforest there's a lot of biological diversity many different species of plants and animals it's humid so volatiles are just much more salient that's one aspect so you get to compare the environmental factors they're also hunter-gatherers so you can imagine that it's important to be able to orient And again, because of the environment, it's lush jungle. So your line of sight doesn't go very far. Your cover it's just green everywhere. Um, So actually to get information from a distance, sound and smell are much more informative under some conditions. So for the kind of hunting aspect uh, and foraging aspects, it might be relevant. But if we look at the specific cultural practices in that community, you see lots of ways that smell is being used. So in medicine, so the Jahai believe that certain smells can make you sick and others can cure it. So often people will be wearing these really ugly ginger roots, you know, around their neck or um, on an amulet, because they believe that pleasant smell drives off illness. So they will like um, these kind of you know innocuous looking flowers. They're not very beautiful, but they're extremely scented. They'll stick them in their hair. So there's a kind of medicinal use. Um, They also has a number of cultural taboos around smell. So for example, if they do hunt game meat, there's some kinds of game that you're not allowed to cook on the same fire. So they'll build two different fires to cook that food. Uh, A brother and sister shouldn't sit too close. Their smells will mix and that's a kind of incest. But so there's a number of different ways that smell organizes uh, people's lives. So those are all kind of like factors that make smell relevant. And then kind of going back to what we we were saying earlier, then there's, you know, if you are talking about how to organize yourself, you know, how to sit together, how to cook, you know, cook food, how to orient in this environment. Smells one of the most important, at least as important, um, as visual information in orienting to that environment. So you can see these kind of boosting effects. But over the years, I've switched, actually, I've started to think, like, why is it that English doesn't have smell yes. language? I mean, the thing is, we know from studies with Western participants that actually our sense of smell is much better than we realise. We're just not consciously aware of it. So for the Jahai, it's another level. They also are consciously aware of the role of smells. And perhaps all those
0: words in their vocabulary, it's a feedback loop and it's reinforcing their awareness of um, how nuanced and complex smells are. That's beautifully put. That's, yeah, exactly right. I have
1: one more question because we're talking about this and, and we're, we're realizing that, you know, language can open up these conceptual possibilities. So... Why wouldn't we push more language instruction, more second or third language instruction in schools um, when we know that it can broaden our understanding of the world and of each other? Some
2: countries are doing this, and I think it's um, great that they are. So Scotland, for example, has a policy that children should learn up to three languages in school. The US is unusual in emphasising monolingual education Um, and I think because English has become the language of science and policy and diplomacy, there's an ease perhaps that goes along with that. Um, But I think, you know, as world politics are changing and different factions are opening up, it becomes, I think, clear that you want to have access to other languages uh, so that you can get information perhaps that isn't being just parceled to you through other actors. So I think there's, you know, cynical reasons to do it. Um, but I mean, you know, if you go to opera, I think their experience of that will be very much enhanced if you can understand Italian or German or it gives you access to culture, which is, you know, ultimately like that's isn't it? that's what life is—learning about each other's experiences and different ways of being, and that your reality isn't the only
0: reality. There's more real there. <laughs> yeah. So let's say you had authority over what gets studied and which languages get the attention that they've not received to date, and so English, Mandarin, all these already studied, overly studied languages aside. Do you have any sort of sense of what the criteria should be to determine, well, we should shift the focus and our resources to that part of the world and these set of languages. Do you have any sense of which seem to be more urgent?
2: Again, thinking about the scientific criteria, it's most informative to look at languages that are the most different. So a single study from a language that varies along a bunch of different dimensions can give us more initial information at least. So for example, uh, rather than studying German as another language because it's so closely related to English spoken in, uh, by people that are historically speaking related languages and that culturally share many things. Not that they're the same, but that they share many things. It would be more interesting to go to a very different context you kind of want to go to a language that's unrelated, so not from the same language family and probably spoken in a very different cultural context. So Papua New Guinea, for example, has much more linguistic diversity where any one of those languages could be interesting. Um, Places in South America um, could also be very interesting. Maybe you also just want to look at other sign languages going completely, you know, to different modality. So there's plenty of opportunities you know the many of the thousands of languages that haven't been described yet Mm. um are would be great but it has to be done in consideration of the local communities so you know you don't want thousands of researchers going to one community of a few hundred people and especially if the community doesn't buy into what's happening so it has to be done in conversation with the people to see uh if they if they want to participate in something like that but there's no shortage, you know, out of the 7,000 languages out there, uh, we have only in-depth work on really a handful of them. So even big languages like Arabic, for example, have very few um, studies. So if you look at the language acquisition, um, where you think, well, that's where researchers should really focus on linguistic diversity if we understand how children acquire language. Uh, we see that there's more studies of Hebrew than there are of Arabic, even though Hebrew is a much smaller language. So there are some languages that are spoken by very large communities that are still under-researched. But I think from my perspective, looking at um, small-scale communities that are likely most different, like the Jahai, for example, that opened up these avenues of, you know, smell was something that was thought wasn't important for humans and could never be uh, part of language, yet the Jahai showed us that that is something that's possible, and it opened up a a, a whole uh, range of questions that never would have been asked before. So I think you know out there, there's these gems of languages that have possibility spaces that we can't even conceive of yet mm-hmm. um, that could be opened up.
0: This is like mind blowing and expansive. And as somebody who started out speaking Korean, and then we moved to America, and then. You know, I had to learn English if I wanted to go to school and then talk to people. I have to say, I'm thankful that we have this one shared common language. Thank you for sitting down with us and having this wide-ranging
1: conversation. I'm so excited about your work and look forward to how you
0: put it all into shape. Thank you for being so game. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. The Born Curious podcast is brought to you by Harvard Radcliffe Institute. Thanks for joining us. You can find Born
1: Curious wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about Harvard Radcliffe Institute, visit radcliffe.harvard.edu.